Auburn Analytical v. TA Instruments. May it please the Court, Brian Matsui on behalf of Melbourne. The District Court construed the term pipette guiding mechanism narrowly by inserting the word manually into the claims. That construction is wrong for three reasons. First, claim construction does not require evidence of a phrase's prior use in order to have an ordinary meaning. Under Phillips, the ordinary meaning of a term can be understood from how the words are used in context. And whose burden is it to establish there's an ordinary meaning? I don't think there's a burden because it's a question of law when you have just intrinsic evidence here when you're talking about. If there was disavowal of some sort or prosecution history disclaimer, then that would be the burden on the side that's trying to assert it. But when you're talking about something just here like what does the intrinsic record show, then there's not a burden on how you would discern the ordinary meaning of a term. And if we take a look at this claim term, there's nothing in the intrinsic record at all that would suggest that the pipette assembly has to be manually moved. The claims, the figures, the written description, they're all agnostic as to what moves the pipette assembly. In fact, the patent doesn't use the word manual at all. What is your best intrinsic support for your agnostic contention? Well, I think that the best intrinsic support is the fact that it doesn't say automatic or manual. When you look at the language of the claims themselves, it just discusses, if we look at, for example, claim 9 of the 175 patent at appendix 54, it's just talking about a pipette guiding mechanism arranged to guide the pipette assembly between and into at least two positions of operation. And so it's just talking about where these pipette assembly goes and what restricts its movement, not what actually moves it. Can I ask you about the, turning to the district court's opinion, I frankly am not clear. On appendix 10 and 11, first he rests on iridescent and the briefs describe why that's not the relevant precedent for these coin term issues in this case. But then he talks mainly about the prosecution history. So that's where his emphasis was, right? And can you, I'm a little unclear, frankly. At the bottom of page 10, he's talking about partly the re-examination. There are two proceedings here, right? There's the re-exam and then there's the original thing on the, what's the other patent family called? The Broga. Broga, okay. So when he's talking about, at the top of appendix 11, this rejection was cited during re-exam. And then again, he refers a few lines later to the examiner's rejection. Is he, he, I don't understand what he's referring to. And I'll ask your friend about this too. Certainly. Because the examiner didn't, my understanding, during the exam, the patent owner cited this and the examiner rejected his argument that this was only manual. So when he's talking about the rejection, what is he talking about? So he's talking about the rejection in the Broga prosecution history. So what he's talking about is the fact that the examiner rejected the Broga claims. Right. Because they would have been, he said, anticipated by Plotnikov, the patents, the application at issue here. And he's saying that, well, I think that what's going on is that the examiner rejected ultimately 
the statements made by the applicants. It's, it's not entirely clear, but I think so that, that... that cuts the other way entirely. It, it, That's it, why I'm a little confused. I, I think that it is, it is a little confusing here, but I think that the key language is uh, at Appendix 11, where in the middle of the paragraph, at the middle, he says, as a coin term, I find that pipette guiding mechanism is limited by plaintiff's statements during prosecution of the 782 patent that the Plotnikov specification does not teach that mechanism operates manually. And so he's construing the these claims. The mechanism operates automatically. Is that what you were reading? The, the, the mechanism operates automatically. And so he's saying it does not teach that it operates automatically. And so I think what he's, the district court here was requiring was that there be some sort of express disclosure of automatic in the, in the patent itself. But there isn't an express disclosure either, any disclosure of either manual or automatic, because as I mentioned, it's agnostic. But I, this is the sole basis for the narrowing of the claims, this prosecution history of an unrelated patent where the applicant's arguments were rejected by the examiner. Well, we do have some cases, but arguably in a different context, where we have made statements about the inventor's statements during prosecution are indeed relevant. Again, leaving aside the fact that these were unrelated patents and not part of the same patent family. We do have those statements, but those were in the context, I assume, where at least those arguments weren't rejected. That, that's correct, or at least they weren't clearly rejected like they were here. And so, and, and in, those, in that context where you're not talking about disclaimer of the prosecution history, what you're ordinarily talking about is maybe the prosecution history is consistent with all the other parts of the uh, intrinsic record which clearly show the same thing. But here, the problem with the district court's construction is that Again, its only basis for narrowing the claims to manually was based upon this prosecution history that was rejected. The argument was rejected from an unrelated patent that was then imported into the claims. And then when you look at, as I mentioned, the claims themselves don't mention automatic or manually at all. They just talk about the restrictions on the movement itself. But if we look at the specification, it's similarly agnostic. If we look at um, column 7 of the 175 patent, which is at... Appendix 5050, that whole column discusses in detail the pipette guiding mechanism. And all the discussion there is talking about things that restrict movement, like guide grooves and guide sleeves and guide pins. So around line 12, it says the guide rod is restricted by guide grooves in the guide rod and guide pin. Line 18, it talks positions of operation are arranged at equal distance about the entire rotation of the guide assembly but at different angular positions. And at line 57, it talks about coaxial external guide sleeve with corresponding guide pass for the guide arm. That's just talking about structures that restrict movement, but none of that. And you won't find it anywhere in this passage that talks about moving the pipette assembly by hand or moving the pipette assembly by machine, because it's just agnostic about it. And so I think that if, if we were to take a step back and look at the district court's construction here. You have this term, pipette guiding mechanism. And if it was really such a difficult term for which there'd be no plain ordinary meaning, you would expect there would be a very long and detailed construction. Instead, all the district court did was rearrange the words, those three words, and insert manually. So it just becomes a, a mechanism to manually guide the pipette rather than pipette guiding mechanism. There's no reason to limit the claims in such a way. 
Did all of the figures, and I thought that there might have been at least an argument made by opposing counsel that all of the figures were just showing manual operation and that you might have admitted that or your side might have admitted that. Is that a true statement or not a true statement? That's not a true statement. All we've said is that the disclosure here does not expressly disclose automatic movement of the pipette assembly, and that's 100% accurate because it doesn't expressly disclose. It's agnostic. But similarly, it doesn't expressly disclose movement. If we look at the figures of the patent, like figure 5 and figure 6, all the various figure 5A, 5B, appendix 43, what you're seeing is on the guide rod grooves that basically show how the movement is restricted. But nothing there is suggesting that this has to be done by hand or has to be done manually or certainly can't be done with the use of the motor. I mean, these are comprising claims, so you don't need to detail everything like a motor or a handle or some sort of controller. And that was all in the prior art, right? Is there any dispute that the automated stuff was in the prior art? There's no dispute that there was automatic movement in the prior art. My friend on the other side, he admitted that at the hearing, that there was an arm that moved that would have the titration needle and the syringe to it. That's the same thing we're talking about here. And we have a picture of that at appendix 865, which shows an auto ITC arm attached to a guided straight path. And at appendix 949 to 950, there's a discussion about pushing a button to move the syringe. And so that's all in the prior art as to what this was known, that it was known that you could automatically move a pipette assembly. It's just that there's nothing in the patent that would indicate that you would have to do it manually. I know you have a fallback argument, even if the Broga prosecution statements are incorporated into the IDS. But there's also, but you're arguing that they shouldn't be, or the court shouldn't have considered it. But there's an argument that you conceded that. Well, I don't think that we could, I think that you don't, first of all, no matter what, it's still the prosecution history of an unrelated patent. And so this court's cases like Pfizer and Hill-Rom would still basically inform that you would not say that you would use that prosecution history to construe the scope of the claims. The argument is that it was incorporated in because it's listed in the IDS. What are the limits to that argument, though? Because I understand that they're unrelated, but it's the same exact term from similar people, right? It may not be the same inventor, but it's not complete. Is it the same family or something? It's the same term. It's the same kind of concept, right? It's not at all the same family. It is common ownership, but that is just like, that's just like Pfizer. Right, right, right. But so in here, I mean, to me, what's compelling is that you may have made an argument to try to get a patent in that separate unrelated patent that you lost. Maybe it was unwise or you did it for other reasons, but you lost that and it wasn't relied upon. What would happen if in that case you had argued that it was a coin term and they'd adopted that specific meaning you proposed there? Would that have no effect on this case? I mean, this court's precedent in Hill, like in Hill-Rom and Pfizer would indicate that it still would not have an effect, that you're not looking at an unrelated patents prosecution history, even if there is like a disclaimer. But of course, as you mentioned, Judge Hughes. I think that I have a hard time accepting that if it's a coin term and I don't 
honestly get there on this one, but if it is a specific coin term that that was created by this owner or, or you know, whatever, and it was ascribed a specific meaning and it was relied upon by an examiner, even in an unrelated patent, to grant that patent, that you would be allowed to argue a completely different interpretation just because they're unrelated. None of that is here, but it seems to me that the mere fact that it's unrelated doesn't answer the question. It, I mean, it's, it's yes. I think that if it had been accepted, you, there would be a better argument that there should be some sort of estoppel principle, although this court did address that in Hill-Rom. But I think that had that been the basis for overcoming a rejection, then I think that you know it would sort of look like maybe you should hold the patent owner to that. But that, again, is not what we have here. What we have here is the actual argument was rejected. And so it, does, it seems actually more unfair to hold the patent owner to that argument that was rejected, that wasn't the basis to overcome a rejection. Was the argument there that it was a coin term or just that? No, Your Honor. I mean, I don't think that, you know, to the extent there is this separate coin term precedent, like I don't think that pipette guiding mechanism where you have three commonly understood words that the district court recognized are, you know, commonly understood words would be the type of, you know, phrase that you would say is a coin term. I think that a coin term is something that's probably more vague, like inherently vague, so that it's something that has been chosen like a term of art. But pipette guiding mechanism, the way it's used in column seven of the patent is purely descriptive. And I don't think that that's something to say that you wouldn't have an ordinary meaning for. A coin term is very close to, would you agree, iridescent as a coin term, highly subjective, yada, yada. I think that that is, that, you know, looking at like the use of the word coin term, that would make much more sense because you would have a phrase there that you can't understand in context what it means just looking at it in the context of the patent. But here, where you just have words like pipette guiding mechanism that have commonly understood words, the words are being used precisely as you expect them to be used. And the patent claims themselves provide details about what the limitation is. I don't think that that's a coin term. Certainly if you have magnetic fuzz or something along those lines, it could be that the patentee is trying to create a term of art. And so then you might need to look to the specification to see what does that really mean? What does that term of art mean? And in that situation, you could see that you would limit to the spec. But even if you were to say this is a coin term, you would be limited to the structures that are disclosed here in the specification, which just basically are restrictions on the type of movement, not how the pipette assembly is moved. So even if you were to sort of buy into the coin term framework the district court had, it still wouldn't be a justification to narrow the claims here. I'd like to reserve my time for rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Good morning. Starting with the notion that we just ended on and what is a coin term, in Indicon, custom link was determined to be a coin term. In Erdetto, group key was determined to be a coin term. Now they didn't use the phrase coin term. They said they had no ordinary meaning in the art. In Honeywell, terrain floor boundary was a coin term. So which of these terms, I mean, do you agree that individually these are not coin terms, these are terms that are found in the art? We separate the phrase. There's no evidence at all that the term mechanism has any meaning in the art. It's a nonce term. It's like means. It doesn't indicate any structure. It doesn't indicate anything specifically. So we all know what a mechanism is conceptually, but in the art, 
of ITCs. No one says, ah, a mechanism. I know what that is. There was no means plus function arguments raised here, right? There was not because we made the argument we made and we won it. Our fallback argument, had we got there, would have been a 112F, but we never got there because Judge Andrews accepted correctly that this was a term that had never been used. They had every opportunity. He invited them to offer expert testimony. I'm an expert. I'm a POSA. I know what this means. There were 150 references cited. Not a single one used the term mechanism, let alone, let alone pipette guiding mechanism. And when they themselves in the Broga patents, the same assignees, were going to the same feature, but this time automated, they didn't use the phrase pipette guiding mechanism. They used pipette translation unit. So they used a totally different term when they were trying to capture the well, scope. Do you, not think that, do you agree insofar as what it means is a mechanism that guides a pipette? I mean, you just look at the words and the English language resolves at least up till that point? Uh, it, yes, and I think Judge Andrews acknowledged all three words can be found in Webster's, but that's no different than custom language. No, I'm talking about the meaning of the term, that it's a mechanism that guides a pipette. That's what it says. Well, if, 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 if it's read that way, with mechanism with no defined structure, it has no meaning other than something, the function of anything. Okay, that, well, that, that gets us into means plus function it, land. That doesn't resolve this case under the, the guise that the district court resolves. If this is not a coin term, then it is means plus function. And that would be even worse for plaintiffs because the structure is so narrow. And well, I, but that's not the case before us. You want us to go there? You want us to litigate a case that wasn't the arguments that weren't made to the district court on means plus function? No, Your Honor. If if you, I believe that Judge Andrews got it right. But if you disagree that Judge Andrews got it right, the response is to send it back to analyze whether it is a means plus function term. Because even in their briefing, they describe it as, and, and they're never that a simply a mechanism arranged to guide. Well, that's a functional limitation that sounds a lot like one twelve F. Did so, you preserve means plus function arguments below? You just indicated that was your fallback. Was that preserved? Your, your, your Honor, we first of all, it's, it's of course de novo. But in any event, you don't preserve something when you win your lead argument. There's no waiver issue. Well, you preserve them if you make them during claim construction. We don't believe it's means plus function. We Did believe, you make that? No, because we didn't believe it is means plus function. We believe it's okay. a coin term. So you didn't preserve it. You you can't not you can't waive a de novo as a matter of law. You can't waive a de novo review of something when you win your lead argument. You don't need to preserve fallbacks, as, as just as a legal matter. But I I, I, I don't think you're right on that. But uh, Judge Andrews can decide that if it goes back. Understood, Your Honor. Can I move you to another issue? Which sure. It's is just really perplexing to me, which is the public notice function underlies everything we do. Absolutely, Your Honor. How is a member of the public supposed to interpret the fact that in this prosecution history, even assuming it's relevant, you've got someone saying this and the examiner saying, you're wrong, and that's the end of the thing. So if anything, why isn't it the case that if the public were to derive anything from this prosecution history, it would be no, not yes, to what the patent owner said? So, Your Honor, let's track this chronologically for a moment. It's an important question you ask. The assignee of the patented issue in this case said, first in the Broga patent itself, that uh, that the Plotnikov patent is incorporated by reference, and it is a manual ITC system. Those, that wasn't in the prosecution history. That was in the patent itself, and that's at A6996. 
So in the patent itself, the assignee tells the world that the Plotnikoff patent is a manual ITC. So that's the patent. That's public notice all over. Now let's go to the prosecution history, where the assignee said, quote, there is no teaching in Plotnikoff indicating that a pipette guiding mechanism should provide automated translation of the pipette. The pipette guiding mechanism 510, using exactly the same number, is purely a passive guiding mechanism. That statement was made in the Broga patent prosecution. That prosecution was then incorporated in the Plotnikoff re-exam. Before you get to the re-exam, what did the examiner do with that argument made during prosecution? He rejected it, or she rejected it. Well, disagreed, but then they still won the patent because they argued common ownership. For something else. So the examiner rejects the argument, and they move on to something else. So how is the public supposed to accept what the examiner himself rejected, and which they didn't pursue on appeal or whatever, they moved up to something else, which is something entirely different. So how is the public supposed to take away what the patent owners tried to argue and was rejected by the examiner really has meaning in terms of the... As this court said in Multitech at 1350, quote, we have stated on numerous occasions that a patentee's statements during prosecution, whether relied on by the examiner or not, are relevant to claim construction. In that case, was it rejected by the examiner or whether we... I mean, there are three buckets here. There's the bucket with the patent owner, and the bucket you're talking about is it could be the patent owner says a lot of things during prosecution, and the examiner never gets there. But in this case, that's not this case, right? In this case, the examiner rejected the argument made by the patent owner. And then the patent owner came back. Yes, but remember, the patent owner came back in a second round. That quote I just read you was the second round. So the examiner said it's automated. The patent owner says it's not. The examiner says, yes, it is. The patent owner comes back and says, it's really not. But also, Your Honor, you don't... You're rather, you're the patent office. You don't have to get there because we're common owners, therefore it's not prior art. So the last word, as it were, was the patent owner saying, you're wrong. No, the last word on this question was by the examiner that rejected the argument made by the patent owner. Did the examiner not reject the argument made by the patent owner? The examiner's... On this automatic manual. And then, but then they came back and said, you're wrong. I mean, it wasn't... Who's they? The patent owner? Assany. Malvern, in this case, came back, and this is at a... That's the point I'm trying to make. Right. What is the public supposed to take away? What the patent owner argued, and maybe re-argued and re-argued, or what the examiner did in rejecting that argument and granting the patent on other grounds? Well, remember, this was also in the patent itself. So this whole prosecution issue isn't necessary for this, the argument that Judge Andrews accepted to be accepted by this court. The Broga patent itself says it was a manual system, that the Plotnikoff was a manual system. And so, prosecution history aside, we have the coin term being defined in the Broga patent, which was then incorporated by reference into the Plotnikoff intrinsic record. So tell me, what is the district court, in his opinion, in Appendix 11, where he says plaintiffs... First he says, this rejection was cited during the re-exam. This rejection, what rejection was he talking about? I mean, the examiner rejected the argument. And so, when he says, this rejection, on the first line, what rejection is he talking about? He's talking about the second round, I believe, the second go-round, where the examiner said... 
what the exam, what the quote I read you was responding to. But they were back and forth, back and forth, and then Malvern said it doesn't matter anyway, your patent office, because we have common ownership and therefore it's prior art. So the issue was unresolved. It's not like Malvern ever said, all right, you're right, this was automatic, but we have another way to go about it. They agreed to disagree. The patent office and Malvern said, we're not going to resolve this. They each took two rounds at this, and then Malvern said, but it doesn't matter anyway. Uh, the, point, the, the, the key issue here, from our perspective, we, we, is counsel, and, and throughout this litigation, has tried if to... If we disagree that it's a coin term, do you agree that you lose? No, because in, in Retractable, in Simed, in Network Commerce, in Microsoft, there was no finding of coin term in any of those cases, and they were still held to what the specification discloses. Uh, and here, we keep hearing the term agnostic. Agnostic is just a fancy word for it doesn't disclose an automatic translation. And so they're trying to read this term broadly enough to include something that they admitted. And, and counsel said that they acknowledged that, it wasn't ex that automatic wasn't expressly in the patent. They went one step further at A3403 at argument at the claim construction hearing. They said unambiguously that Plotnikoff doesn't, quote, doesn't have a disclosure of an automatic pipette guiding mechanism. That's not agnostic. That's an absence. Are you potentially raising a 112 issue that you have with the pen? If, Your Honor, if we were not successful today, ultimately, or on remand, we would, of course, argue a 112 uh, you know, written description or enablement issue. But what Microsoft and Retractable, Simon Network, and then, of course, all of the coin term cases, they're Dedo and Indicon and Iridescent and the like. All of those say, you have a term like this, you, and your spec doesn't give you the breadth you want. We're going to limit you to what the spec says. And that's, of course, what Phillips tells us, that the best guide to the meaning of the term is, is to look at the patent, the intrinsic record as a whole. And again, it's not agnostic as to automatic. Automatic just isn't there. And they told us in the Broga patent, Automatic just isn't there. They told us in the prosecution history of Broga, automatic just isn't there. So we're giving them claim scope that in trying to get the next generation of patents, they told the patent office and the public, it's just not there. Any other questions? Oh, thank you, Your Honor. We'll restore three minutes to Thank you, Your Honor. I'd just like to start with the uh, means plus function issue. Again, Good, that that's was... exactly what I wanted you to start with. What, what is your position? It, that was forfeited. It was never made at claim construction, so there is no means plus function argument. When you look at the claim language here, too, there is structure. It discusses more than just pipette guiding mechanism. The limitation goes on and discusses to move within two different positions for washing and for loading the titrant to be rotational. Is that something that can be forfeited? I mean, we do claim construction de novo. It's clear we have plenty of cases that say, you know, you say one claim construction, he says the other, and we can do, you know, come up with whatever claim construction I, I, we want. It, Would we be precluded from concluding or deciding that this is a means plus function? I, I believe you would because it still is arguing for something that they never presented to the district court. It's effectively changing the construction. And why on, on remand would... Well, it would, you would agree that it would be up to the district court judge. To I mean, we would say that they could renew a, a, an argument even if, if not made originally based and, on this new. And it may depend, Your Honor. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead. It, it may depend, Your Honor, of course, as to what the rules are, the local rules would be, as to what what arguments you could make in claim construction if you haven't made them before. But certainly, 
you know, it's something that they could make, I guess, below to the district court. Forfeiture is ultimately discretionary. It is. Um, as opposed to other waiver type things. But you can forfeit legal arguments if you don't raise them timely. That's correct, Your Honor. And, but you have an argument on means plus function. I, 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 we don't think that this is a means plus function claim anyway. So I, I think that the more important thing, of course, is just to get the claim construction here corrected. And I think that the rule that Waters is advocating effectively is going to require experts in every single claim construction case, even when you have very clear ordinary meanings to words, because you're always going to need an expert to say, well, the ordinary meaning of pipette guiding mechanism here is this. And that's just unnecessary burdens on district courts. The what only do you say to his other argument, his final argument about there's just nothing here. There's nothing there that says anything about the automatic. But there's nothing that says anything about manual either. And it's conceded. Well, I, I think they might disagree. I mean, at least they have this user thing, right? But that's talking about you know a, a lot of different things. It's not talking about the pipette guiding mechanism. There are things that are automated in Plotnikov, and there are things that can be manual or they can be automated. And there's nothing, again, when you're looking at the pipette guiding mechanism that, that indicates that it has to be narrowed to manual to manual movement of the pipette assembly. I'd like to just say one thing on the IDS. The only things that are in decided in the IDS are the rejections. So if you're talking about the public notice function, the only thing that a person of ordinary skill in the art would look to would be what the examiner said, not even what the applicant said in the unrelated patent, which shouldn't be considered anyway because of Pfizer and Hillrom. And lastly, what I was looking at Appendix 6996, and that's the Broga patent. And what it's talking about is you know, a manual, more manual ITC for the Plotnikov patents. But there are lots of things in Broga that are automated that aren't in, in Plotnikov in the patents here, such as it's talking about things like you know, auto washing and auto reloading. So it's just the mere fact that the Broga patents say, you know, it's the Plotnikov patents have more manual doesn't mean that it's talking about manual guiding the oh, movement. Sorry. Thank you. Uh, we thank both sides in the case.